Testing, test. There I go. Well, well, it's so good to be with all of you. I am so honored to be here at Catch... Oh, release the kids. Come on, kids. you got to go to your classes. So uh, dads or moms, can you direct your children to the right spot? Everybody knows where that is. There's children's rooms on this side and on this side. And it reminds me of being a pastor. I haven't been a pastor for a few years, so... I'm here with my wife, Diane. We actually met um, almost exactly 37 years ago. Uh, met at a riot in San Francisco, which was kind of fun. San Francisco is an unusual place. They have riots there. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we've been married 36 years. We have seven kids, and uh, we raised them on the mission field of San Francisco, which, by the way, has less Christians per capita than India. And so um, San Francisco is an unusual place. Uh, but we were able to establish uh, initially, for seven years, we were trained in a ministry that was church planting. Actually, uh, if any of you are counting, most of you probably weren't even alive, but uh, I moved there with the church planting team in 1977, which makes it 40 years ago. And so, uh, so we sent, spent seven years with that ministry, and then we just uh, went into a season of just you know, rest and retreat for a little bit, and then met a guy named John Wimber. And that changed our life trajectory. Uh, we went to a conference, got touched by the Holy Spirit. God began to do miracles in San Francisco. And we uh, started a vineyard church within a couple of months. And uh, God just blessed what we were doing. It was phenomenal. Then in 1994, we uh, made our way up to a little place called Toronto. <laughs> we heard about God moving there. We just, we just dropped everything. We brought five of our pastors up there, and we just got so blessed, so empowered, so touched. We went back to San Francisco, and God began to move sovereignly. So we did 18 months, six nights a week, of uh, just you know, hosting the blessing that God had poured out through Catch the Fire. And uh, so we, we feel like we're connected to you. We're family. We are. We're connected to you guys. You know, some of our, some of our story just is, is, uh, is dependent upon what God did to us through your family. And so uh, anyway, so we did 25 more years of, of pastoral work in San Francisco as senior pastors with the Vineyard. And then uh, the Lord said we were done. After another season of, of renewal and outpouring in 2008, 2009, uh, we moved up to Redding, California. Four of our kids had already been up there going to school, and uh, we went there, and the Lord just made it clear that we were um, to move. And so we began to turn over our church to another leader, and I began to work with a ministry called Jesus Culture. I don't know if you guys know that, but um, it was a great place for me to just heal up from the bruises of pastoral ministry but also to be able to make a contribution to what they were doing and worked with them for four years and then I helped them prepare for the church plant that they did. And of course, uh, I don't give them permission to call it a church plant because they started with 2,000 people. Um, so that's not a church plant. <laughs> that's something else. I don't know what to call it. But anyway, I mean, when I think about what you guys accomplished, just moving here, knowing one other family and look at what the Lord's done. I mean, this, this is phenomenal, you guys. I don't know if you realize in the annals of church history, if you were to look at what you know, God is doing around the world and the, the challenges. I mean, Diana and I know firsthand. We started with four people in our living room. We reached a peak of about 1,000 adults. It was, it, was, it was tough work. And so I'm so filled with honor for uh, Duncan and Kate and also for your lead pastors 
you know, Murray and Ash, who are away during this time, which I'm very sad about because I don't get to spend time with them here. But I do get to spend time with some of the team and obviously with your uh, senior leaders. And so it's just a great, great thing to be here. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Um, before I get into the word, though, I felt like the Lord gave me a word for you as a church. And um, when I walked in the room, I felt like the Lord said, this is my headquarters. And that's an interesting word. I don't, I, I don't think I've ever used that word, you know, in a message. I don't think like that. Headquarters is just not in my vocabulary generally. I don't think of it. But I thought of a couple of things, you know. As soon as that word came to my mind, I felt like the Lord was saying that this is the place of his command. I feel like there's an authority that is on you as a church, and that authority is not just for what you've built here, but it's an authority in the nations. I believe the captain of the Lord of hosts is with you, like Joshua when he was about to enter the promised land, and he ended up having this encounter with, I believe, a pre-incarnate uh, image of Christ, the captain, because he fell down and worshipped, and the, and the angel that was there did not say, don't worship me. I believe it was Jesus himself, and I believe that he encountered the Lord at that moment as the captain of the Lord's armies. And I believe that there's a headquarter reality here. The headquarters, and, and Jesus is the head. There's another analogy in the scripture beyond the military, which is the reality. It's the reality of the body. And, and it's, it says that, that um, we speak the truth in love so we can grow up into him who is all you know, head of all things. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the body. And you and I. And so he is the head and we've made a quarters for him, a dwelling place for the head, the headquarters. It's not just a place of command, but it's a place of the dwelling of the Lord. And then just my mind went right away to the idea of headwaters. You guys know what a headwaters is? You know, when the word head is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it actually, in, in many of the, the Hebrew and Greek words, it actually means source. It's the head waters. It's not head in terms of authority, I oversee, I control. It's head in terms of source, like all things come out. There's a place north of Redding, California, where you can actually go to the foot of Mount Shasta, which is a massive, it's the third largest base to peak mountain in the world, next to Kilimanjaro and Fuji. Okay, and out of the ground, you can literally stand there in this little park, and out of the, out of the rock comes a river. And it's called the Sacramento River. And without the Sacramento River, there would not be a Redding and there would not be a San Francisco because that, that water comes down and creates a bay that becomes a harbor, that becomes a place of export. Headwaters are important. And I believe you guys are a headwaters of a new move of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, you're carrying a move that's already come, but I believe that God's, that you are like a, a rock that the Lord is saying, he's, he's saying, speak to the rock. And this headwaters comes out. And I believe that it's a headwaters not just for Raleigh or for this triangle area here. It's a headwaters for the rest of the nation and the rest of the world. Because I believe God is birthing something here that's going to carry out from there. And so it's a headquarters. It's a headquarters for the commander. It's a headquarters for the place where the head of the body can dwell. It's a headwaters for what God wants to do around the world. And I believe that you guys are prototypical. You're a prototype. 
You're giving birth to something, a new stream, a new, a new element of, of, of an, a new expression of Christ on the earth. And so it's just an honor and a pleasure and a pleasure and an honor to be with you. All right, open your Bibles. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Open your Bibles to Matthew 16. And uh, we're going to look at... Um, we're going to look at a scripture today that I think asks the most important question in all of history. In all of the universe, there's not a more important question that is addressed here. This is a familiar passage. Probably many of you have read it many, many times. But Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them a question. And he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You guys know the story. He says, who do you say that I am? And some say, well, you know, some say you're this, Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're someone else. And he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And, and every single one of us has to face that question. You know, if you're here today and you've never faced that question, I want to invite you as I'm speaking to even begin to ponder the question. Who do men say that I am? Because Jesus is asking this question to every one of us, and literally your entire eternity hangs on the balance of how you answer this question. You know, it's such an important question. Because it will determine your life now. Your, it will determine your, your personal destiny. It will determine the way you do family in your home. It will determine the way you succeed in life. It will determine the, the place you spend eternity. I mean, this, this statement is just so mind-blowingly important. Who do you say that I am? You know, when I was, a, I was raised in San Francisco by hippie parents, my parents moved to San Francisco to get away from religion. To get away, they were Catholic in their background. They, they, they wanted to get as far away from their family as possible to this beatnik place in the 1960s called San Francisco. This is before the hippie movement. But then, as soon as the hippie movement started, which is actually 50 years ago this summer, is what was called the Summer of Love. And the Summer of Love happened as, a, as an earthquake of sociological proportions where there was this epicenter that actually was in San Francisco. There was this growing dissatisfaction in youth culture at that moment, very similar to what we have right now. I believe that revival comes in a moment of tectonic tension where the, where the plates of earth are moving in this direction and the plates of heaven are moving in this direction and it creates this dynamic tension that when it gives birth, something is released. Now the something that's released when that earthquake takes place can be destructive, but it can also be incredibly destabilizing and allowing the Lord to reset something. So in the exact same summer... 50 years ago was when something happened called the Jesus Movement. I don't know if you guys heard about that, but it was right on the heels of this explosion, this revolution that was taking place sociologically, and a whole, I mean, hundreds of thousands of young people opened up to Jesus. And Jesus became the chatter. Jesus, you know, my wife, Diane, she was saved in that era, and, and, uh, and she was baptized on the beaches of Corona del Mar. You can actually get video of this particular experience where 300 people every weekend were being baptized every weekend for three years. Could you imagine 300 babies coming into the kingdom every week for three years? Where, yeah, amen, do it again, Lord. We want it now. 
In fact, it's interesting because I believe that we are on the verge of a billion soul harvest. I believe that we are on the verge of what could be the greatest harvest of human souls in all of human history. And that you get to be a part of it. That this is so amazing. In fact, um, you know, I don't have any books to sell, but I just want to say I wrote a book called Revival Culture because I feel like, hey, there is a harvest coming. Unfortunately, I feel like the church is pretty unprepared. That it's time for us to get ready. You know, any one of you families, I mean, we look at the little baby, four weeks old right there, Jonathan's baby, okay, and we say, wait a minute, you didn't just, you know, um, you weren't part of that TV show that said, oh, I didn't know I was pregnant. You know what I mean? It's like, you guys knew you were pregnant, you prepared for the baby to come. And it's like, we've got to prepare because we got babies coming, you guys. This house, that's why you're going to, that's why you're going to two services in about two months, right? It's because you got to make room for the babies, Isaiah 54, sing, O barren one, you who have no children, for more shall be the children of the barren woman. We've got to sing because God's about to bring the babies, but hey, you've got to do life differently when babies come. You can't go out to dinner every night when a baby comes. You know, you got, you're going to be up all night. You're going, to be, you're going to be changing dirty diapers when babies come. And, and the thing is, you guys, you've got to know that if you're walking in the kingdom right now, if you're in connection with the Holy Spirit, you're pregnant as a church, you know? And I'm kind of like a, a bit of a, of a spiritual gynecologist, you know? It's like I'm saying, hey, you know? It's like I'm saying, hey, mama, hey, mother church, it's time to get ready for the babies because they're coming. You know, they're coming, you guys. And so it's really important for us to reset, to recalibrate our hearts. Okay, who do men say that I am? I didn't know who Jesus was. I was raised, I went to church once in my whole life. And so I ended up actually starting to hitchhike around the country as a long-haired 15-year-old. And I started meeting believers because that was a favorite way to witness back in the day was that you picked up a hitchhiker and you had a captive audience. And so people would just nail me with the gospel, and I got my dukes up. I began to fight back, and uh, there was one particular day where six rides in a row with believers. <laughs> and I, re- I remember getting out of the car in a little town called Boonville. I'm not kidding. That was the name of the town. I got out of Boonville, and I got out of the car in a little town named Boonville, and I looked up in the heavens, and I said, surely, great spirit, you don't want me to become a Christian, do you? You know? Because in my mind, Christianity was the least evolved religion. It was almost Neanderthal. You know, it was like it was, it was primitive. It was dualistic. It wasn't enlightened like my new age philosophy that I live by. So when I, then a car pulled up. <laughs> I got in the car. And this amazing woman of God who became my spiritual mom, she basically witnessed to me for another 25 miles. And at the end of the time, she said, well, do you want to pray? And I said, I said, I just felt this thing yield in my heart. And something happened at that moment. She prayed with me to receive the Lord. I I didn't start walking with the Lord right away, but I knew I was born again. Something shifted. In fact, in the very aftermath of that, I had a vision of Jesus. And, And I knew that something was different in my life. Now, it was a year later, I was hitchhiking up to a big hippie gathering, and at that moment, um, I got out of a car in a, on an Indian reservation, a Blackfoot Indian reservation. I got out of the car, walked into the general store to get directions, and a big Indian was facing, to, you know, we did that dance at the door where you, you try, try to get around each other. Anyway, he was facing me. He introduced himself. His name was Tiny Man Heavy Runner. 
I'm not kidding you. <laughs> and Tiny Man um, basically said, hey, I'll, I'll help you find your friends. So we looked for a couple hours, couldn't find him. He took me home. I spent the night in his teepee. I'm not kidding you. And that next morning, I met his grandparents. His grandparents were born-again, spirit-filled, God-empowered believers who, who had come to the Lord 40 years prior. Now they were 75, 76. They came to the Lord 40 years prior to that when Jesus appeared in a bar when they were drinking. And everybody in the bar saw Jesus. 30 people screamed and ran out and dove under tables. And Jesus said to the man, you sober up and follow me. And he said to his wife, you fast for four days and your husband will be healed. So this was life changing for me. I was a long haired hippie kid that was doing a 40 day vegan Ramadan fast. (laughs) You know, I was way too cool to even have a backpack. I just had a bag and I didn't have a sleeping bag. I just had a Gandalf cape. Like the capes in Lothlorien. I mean, that's what I wore because that's what I curled up under so I could disappear under, you know, freeway on-ramps when I'm sleeping at night. And so this was my life, but these guys took me in and I lived with them for six months and they discipled me in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. So I saw miracles, I saw deliverances, I heard the audible voice of God. It was an, but, and I came face to face with the question, who do you say that I am? You know, uh, I remember at that time reading C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and he made this incredible statement. Either Jesus is a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And if he's the Lord, he he couldn't be a liar and did the stuff he did. He couldn't have been a lunatic and accomplished what he accomplished. So he must be the Lord. And if he is the Lord, then he deserves my absolute followership. He deserves my absolute alignment. He deserves my every ounce of my being, every step of my path, every breath that I take. He is worthy of it all. Amen? He is worthy of it all. Isn't he? Isn't he worthy of every ounce, every dream, every issue? We sing an old hymn that says this, we're the whole realm of nature mine. We're the whole realm of nature. When I survey the wondrous cross is the hymn. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. In other words, if I own the entire universe and every planet and every star in the universe, it would still be an offering too small compared to his worthiness. Because love that's so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all, everything that I am. Unless you forsake all, Jesus said, you can't be my disciple. It's not because he doesn't want you to have good stuff. He's going to give you so much good stuff. But until you get this issue straight... That his worth is so far greater than every other aspect of your life. And to the extent that you consider anything in your life more worthy than him, you are stuck in idolatry. And until you settle that issue, you can't really follow him. You're always going to be limping. You're always going to be snagged. You're always going to be held back. You're always going to be one foot in one world and one foot in the other. And that's the most miserable place to live. I mean, just become a heathen at that point. 
Jesus said, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. In other words, you're not even getting the blessings of the kingdom because you're not fully devoted. And Jesus gave no other plan B. It's like, hey, it's all or nothing, you guys. There's no such thing as going to church. <laughs> there is no such thing. So when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? He's, he, he's, he's challenging us into an encounter. Because if he is who he says he is, then that is 100% requirement on our lives. Amen? Okay, so look at the passage. Let's just, let's just dive in. I'm going to show a couple things, and then we're going to wrap up in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But he says this. Who do men say that I am? And then, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here we find at the beginning of the story, we find three titles that Jesus has. And the first one is the one that Peter, actually it's not the first in order, but it's the first that I'm going to share on, is the one that Peter says, you are the Christ. Now again, to understand this word Christ, because we use it so freely, people use it as a swear word all the time. That what does it actually mean? Why is it so critical? Well, you are Mashiach. You are Messiah. You are the one that was promised from the very third chapter of the book of Genesis when sin entered the world and the destruction of sin began to have its way on the earth. And God spoke and said, your seed will bruise the enemy's head. That there was a moment at which God declared that someone is coming. Someone is coming. Hang on. Somebody's coming and he's going to be known as Messiah. And so then we find in, in Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarah are called, and God speaks to him and says, from your seed, every nation of the world will be blessed. The promise of Messiah. He speaks to Moses, and he says, God's going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, but he's going to, everybody has to listen to him. And then David begins to prophesy in the Psalms about Jesus. And then Isaiah comes, and it doesn't get any clearer than Isaiah. Unto us a, a son is born, and unto us a, child is, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, say it with me, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. It doesn't say that his government shall not end. It says that the increase shall not stop. In other words, Jesus is increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing. Even though there's, there's ungodly stuff going on in the world, the King of Kings, He's putting his print on things. I mean, you guys are a testimony. You sitting here today. You, you could go to any church you want. You're not going to any church you want. You're going to a church that is kingdom-oriented, where we love the king of kings. We invite him. We want to be compelled by him. We want to be propelled by him to change the world. Amen? And so this is where, where, who we are. Because you really can't know who you are until you know who he is. And then in the fullness of time, he manifests the word of God. 
In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the very Christ, the Messiah, the living God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. I mean, this is incredible good news, you guys. It is God himself manifesting himself in human form, not just to put on a show, but to restore humanity to our original intent. When God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and bring it under God's loving dominion, subdue it, that ultimately that commission has never stopped even though sin had its way. That commission is still here today that we are agents, we are ambassadors of a kingdom to bring this world back under the loving care of the one who made it. Amen? So here we are. I mean, this is awesome. This is, this is incredible to Christ. But he's the son of the living God. And when you think of the word son, I mean, you guys are pioneers in the understanding of the father's love, of spiritual sonship. You guys are pioneers in the understanding of the, the power of the orphan spirit to tear humanity apart, but the power of the spirit of adoption to restore us to God's original intent. You guys understand this probably more than most, that this is who he is, the son. And in his sonship, we have sonship. And, in his, and we have daughterhood as well. We come under his sonship into a right relationship relationship with the Father and the Father's love. Incredible revelation of Jesus. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say? This is who you are, Lord. But there's one more thing I want to point out, is that Jesus gave himself a title, and that is the Son of Man. Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. What does that mean? What is he talking about there? Well, Philippians 2 says that though he was with God and though he was equal to God, he did not think equality with God something to be fought for or grasped or possessed, but he emptied himself and became a man. The incarnation is one of the most beautiful expressions of the reality of the God that we serve because he is so good. He's so good that he emptied himself and became one of us. Jesus, fully God, fully man. And the good news of that is that basically if Jesus had only retained his divine prerogative and come, if he was only God in the flesh and not man, if he was only God, then there's no hope for us to become better than we are. Jesus did all these great miracles as God? No. He did all the great miracles as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, as a sign. And that's why he can say to us, greater works shall you do because I go to the Father, because the Holy Spirit will be given to you in the understanding of the Son of Man is the hope of humanity. Because we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was tempted in all ways like we are. He, was, he had to deal with the exact same issues we deal with. Yet he never sinned. He had the victory. And so he pioneered a path of victory for each one of us, which is incredible. So once we know who he is, Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, then all of a sudden we can know who we are. Because in relationship to him, you guys are awesome. 
When you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the hope of glory, that you are incredible. You're no longer even an average homo sapien anymore. If they actually, if they had a, a, a scientific machine that could test the reality of what's taking place inside of you if you're born again, they would have to reclassify you. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are what? A new creation, it actually says, you know, the, the word creation there is a new species. You know, we're actually a new kind of animal, okay? We're a new kind, we're a spirit-filled, incre- you know, homo spiritus is what they'd have to reclassify us. I mean, we are different. We are transformed. We are empowered. And we are breaking the powers of darkness and we're releasing. So, so here we are saying, well, who am I? Well, it's interesting because what, what Jesus does immediately is he speaks to Peter. He says, you are, blessed are you, Peter. See, he, he immediately identifies him. He identifies him in his humanity. He says, I call you Peter. But he, first of all, he says, I call you Simon of Barjona. In other words, there is a human element of who we are in, in the same sense of Jacob. Jacob was a human being. Jacob was a supplanter and a deceiver. Right? You and I all have our, our, our history, our reality of, of who we have been. And that's what Jesus speaks to initially. Because once he's identified, then he can identify us. And he speaks to Peter and he says, Peter, actually Simon, Bar-Jonah. Now if you think of Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. You think of who Jonah was. Jonah was a man who ran away from cities. He ran away from the call of God. He ran away from his destiny And he's speaking to Simon, it's like a reed blown in the wind, the one who's the son of the guy who runs away. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then he says, he renames him. He says, and I call you Peter. And Peter means stone. You guys have heard teachings on the the wordplay here. I call you Peter, and on this boulder I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that is such a pregnant statement, you guys. We've got to break it down a little bit to understand in reference to who he is, who are we? Okay, you are obviously the accumulation of your past and God's work in your past up to this moment. You are that. But you're also called by a new name. You have a destiny in Christ that sets you apart from anything you ever were to become everything that God intends you to become. And that's who you are. You are a son and daughter of the Most High God. You have been saved. You've been delivered. You've been set free. Your heart is being bound up. You are being remade. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you should walk in them. It says in Psalm 139 that all of my days were written out for me in your book when as yet there were none of them. God has a purpose for your life. I call you Peter. Now it's funny because because the Catholics would say, oh yeah, well he's talking about Peter and, and that's why we're Catholic is because there was an apostolic succession from Peter all the way to Pope Francis. Okay, and if you're not aligned with Pope Francis, you're probably not really in the kingdom. Okay, that's sort of the assumption of the Catholic Church. But most of us as Protestants would hold the opposite perspective. Okay, we say he wasn't talking about Peter at all. He's talking about the revelation of who he is. That you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But I would actually argue that he's actually speaking about both. Because a message without a man is only half of a reality. A man without a message is also limited. 
But when you take Peter and the revelation, I mean, Peter was the rock. He was the one who established the church in the early stages. He wasn't perfect. He had all kinds of issues. But he was willing to step into that calling. And that calling, see, when I, I believe that one of, the, one of the things we love about leaders when it works is when the couple personifies their message perfectly. I get to work with a guy named Bill Johnson. It's like, I feel like the man and the message are so entwined. You guys understand that? When I think of John and Carol Arnott, I, I, I think of just the message and the man and woman together. They're one. When I think of Peter, when I think of these guys, Duncan and Kate, and I look at them and I see the quality of what they're building and how they built it and the, and the, the harmony, the, 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 the synergy between who they are as people in Christ and the message and the methodology that they're carrying. It's an awesome, awesome thing. I call you Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. Now that word ecclesia is a tough one, you guys, because we think of church, well, we know the meaning of the word. Ek means outside. Ecclesia means to call, right? So eccentric means outside the circle. How many are eccentric in the room? Let's just see. Okay. Outside the circle. Okay. Outside. We're called outside. But I always understood that for 30 years of my Christian life. I understood ecclesia as called out of the world into the safety of the church so that I can manage my sin until I go to heaven. But that is not the meaning of the word when Jesus co-opted it. This word was the prominent word in ancient Greek for the summoning of the elders out of the village into the city gates. Now you have to understand that in early times they didn't have city hall. They didn't have capital buildings. What they had was they had the gates of the city and the elders would come and sit in the gates of the city and they would legislate on behalf of the good of the village and their, their legislation would then be enacted and they would resolve conflicts between individuals on behalf of the peace of the village. And so when they summoned the elders, that was called the ecclesia, the assembly of the elders. So when we use that word now that Jesus, this is the first time the word church is used in the Bible. You are a church. You are the ones who have been called out of the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. What is it? Cary is the other major city in the triangle. You've been called out of those neighborhoods out of those workplaces, out of the gymnasiums, out of the soccer fields, whatever it is that you're spending your life doing, you've been called out of that to come together to legislate, to hear from the king, and to decide together, to come into agreement around the word of the Lord, and then to bring the word of the Lord back into your world. That that is the understanding, the true biblical understanding of the use of the word church in the context of the era in which Jesus chose that word to define his people. Isn't that crazy? That's a very different picture of church as opposed to how we think about church. We think about church as a place to go to get fed. We think about a church as a place to go and just have a, an, an amazing time meeting our friends. We think about it as a place to raise our hands and worship Jesus. But it's really a training center for world-changing individuals. It is for rulership. It's for subduing the planet. But we don't rule 
like the Gentiles rule. We don't rule by dominance. We rule by influence. We go in with the word of the Lord. We go in with the word of wisdom. We go in with the word of knowledge. We go in with discerning of spirits, and therefore we're able to make a difference. Okay, now, look what he says here, because if you, if you want a little bit more proof of what he's saying, look at the very next verse, because he says, and the gates of Hades. Ecclesia, gates. Ecclesia, elders sitting in the gates. The gates of Hades will not prevail. Now, he's not talking about the lake of fire here, you guys. See, sometimes when we say gates of hell, we think, oh, well, that's the devil's domain. No, he's talking about Hades. Hades was the grave. It was a place of death. And we have authority is what he's saying. He's saying we have authority as the elders of the city to not let somebody with leprosy in or somebody with a plague in or somebody who's going to bring corruption in. We can actually sit at the gates and say, I'm sorry, you can't come in until you work this issue out. Or heal them. Yeah. You guys understand. It's like we have the authority to say no to things in our culture that are contrary to the heart of God that are going to bring destruction or death into people's lives. We have authority to say no to drugs. We have authority to say no to teen suicide. We have authority to say no to uh, divorce, to uh, broken families. We have authority. Now, again, not authority to condemn or to brutalize the people that are victims of these things, but rather the authority in the spirit to be able to provide solutions, to provide support, to provide pathways of freedom for every person that we know. This is the call of the ecclesia, is to bring about the well-being of the world around us. That's our call. That's our purpose, you guys, is that we are coming together to be equipped to accomplish that outcome. That's who we are. In the light of who he is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and the son of man. We start to identify ourselves. We are the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiven of our sins, empowered by the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be the ecclesia, the ones who come together to change the world. We come together to confer, to conspire. What are we going to do today, pinky? (laughs) We're going to do what we do every day. I wish you were saying it because you have a British accent. We're going to do what we do every day. We're going to take over the world. I mean, that's really what we're here for, is to bring the world back under the loving dominion of the living God. We're here to restore all things that he intended when he created us and said, it is good. We need to be in that position, that posture. So we got to go to the gates. The gates. And we got to say no to the junk that shouldn't be. And we say that in the spirit, but we also do what we can in the, in the natural to produce that. But then we also say yes to the stuff we want. Okay, and that's what he says. He says, I give you the keys. Keys are for gates. And gates are for the church, for the elders. You guys are elders. You guys realize that we are in, we are in the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Do you guys know that? In 1517, October 31st, a guy named Martin Luther wrote 95 complaints against the church. All of them were valid, but three of them rose to the surface as the most important things. One of them was the authority of Scripture. We just have to know that the Bible is the Word of God and that there's no other revelation that can counter it. This is God's Word. And, so the, and we all have the power in the Holy Spirit to read this Word and to 
apply it in our lives. Okay, that was number one. Number two is the, the issue of salvation by faith alone. That every one of us, that there's no money that can be given, there's no uh, repetitious prayers that can be uttered that can actually make a difference in my life. No, it's only by faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. But there was a third truth that never really saw the light of day. It was discovered, the concept was transmitted, we sort of said yeah to it, but then we never did it. And that third truth that never got fully enacted was the priesthood of every believer. See, prior to the Protestant Reformation, 10 or 15 people did all the ministry and everybody came and watched. After the Protestant Reformation, 10 or 15 people did all the ministry and everybody watched. In other words, we never changed our methodology. We never changed the way we did church in order to produce the outcome that we're longing for, which is the empowerment of every single member to fulfill their role as elders, the ecclesia, who come together, confer, and then go back into the the world out there to bring change and blessing. We never changed the way we did church. Maybe in the last 50 years or so, there's been some changes. That's why I love the fact that you guys emphasize connect groups here. Because if you're not in a connect group, you're not able to grow fully in your personal expression, your personal destiny, your personal ministry. This is a training ground. The connect groups are a place where you can actually begin to experiment in the spiritual gifts and experiment in teaching and experiment in ministry to one another in a way that will actually empower you when it comes time to be able to minister in the marketplace or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in other places around the city. Connect groups are the key to your individual development in Christ. And if you're not doing it, you're not going to be able to fully understand how to change your world in a powerful way. So I want to encourage you, definitely do that. But here's the thing. I'm going to wrap up, but every one of us, according to Scripture, is a priest. How many full-time ministers do we have in the room? Everybody's hands should go up. You know, if you're in Christ, you're a full-time minister. If you're in Christ, he owns every single moment of every single day of the rest of your life. He, you belong to him. And so that means that you are constantly on duty. There's no, there's no vacation. I can take a vacation in the natural. I can never take a vacation from Jesus. Okay, you guys understand that. I'm on duty all the time. I got my buzzer. You know, I got my, I got my pager. I'm, you know, I'm a heart surgeon. And I'm going and changing people's hearts. But I'm always on call. Right? You are a full-time minister, but guess what? Only about 2% will ever make their money behind a pulpit. Only about 2% or 3% at the most will ever make their money as a vocational minister, and that's exactly God's plan. Because God didn't want all of us to be preachers. He didn't want all of us to be leading churches necessarily. What he wanted is he wanted to be able to spread his full-time ministers into every sphere of society, into every neighborhood, into every situation. It's like he wanted to move us out. He wanted to deploy us. I was just just preaching at this amazing, amazing conference this week, and and Duncan got to preach there as well. And... uh, it's just this amazing group of people called Legacy Center Church in town, and mostly African-American church. I mean, profoundly amazing saints of God. And um, there was one preacher there from, from Grand Rapids. His name's uh, Germain uh, Glenn. And, and he said something. He put language to something that I've been thinking for a long time, but I didn't have the language for. He said, if you're working a job, you're not an employee. You're a deployee. 
In other words, you're not employed, you're not, you're in my world. No, you're deployed, that the king of kings has deployed you into the marketplace sphere that you're called to, and you're going to bring transformation in that sphere. That's who you are, and that's who we are in relationship to that's who he is. And one more thing I'll say about who you are is that you're not just a church for Raleigh. You're not, and not just for the, for the greater metro area of Raleigh. You guys are a church for the nations. You're just, you're just an infant of that long-term calling. I believe that you are a headquarters and that you are ahead of something that God's about to do. You're a headwaters of a river that's going out from here that literally is going to, I believe it's going to be a, more than 1,000 churches. Several thousand churches are going to be birthed and they're going to find their prototype. They're going to find their, their paternal DNA or, the, or maternal paternal. Their parental DNA is going to come from this house. And so you guys have a role not just to reach your marketplace, workplace, vocational, neighborhood reality, but some of you are going to actually be part of that larger global reality. Every one of you has a place in it. But some of you are going to have a significant role in producing that outcome. I need to wrap up. But as we wrap up, I just want to pray for you. you. Can all stand with me? I'd like to invite the ministry teams to come up before I turn it back. If you're a part of the ministry team of this church, could you guys come up? Because I just want to pray for the priests. You guys are priests and kings, the scripture says. He says, for you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. How many of you feel peculiar sometimes? <laughs> You're a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Can you guys just stand and face the congregation as ministry team people? Because we want to anoint some priests today. See, I believe every member is a minister and every minister is a multiplier. I believe that God has put his DNA in each one of us for the purpose of babies, babies in the house. God's going to use you to touch people in your world in such a powerful, compelling way. And as this harvest comes in and as the babies come into the house and as we raise them up into, from infancy to toddlerhood and from toddlerhood to childhood and from childhood to, to adolescence and from adolescence to adulthood, that we're going to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. That is who we are because that's who he is. If we answer the question, who are you, Lord? That's the point at which... We answer the question, who am I? So if you're here today and you've never understood the Lordship of Jesus or submitted your life to him, that was the first people I want to just come on up and just share it. Just say, hey, I want to get right with God. You know, maybe you've never been born again. If that's the case, today's the day. Today's the day that shift can take place, and it's awesome. You'll never regret giving your life to Jesus. But maybe you've just given your life but never fully made him Lord of your life, gosh, you can do that today as well. But for the rest of you, I just want to call you right now to receive an anointing, because I believe there's an anointing here today to commission you for your marketplace vocation. 
If you've been wondering, how do I make a difference in my world? How do I receive my ecclesia grace to be able to go back into the community and bring change? Today's the day. So I'd like you to just step out of your seats right now. Whoever wants that commissioning, whoever wants to be commissioned into the vocation, the neighborhood, those who want to be commissioned, because you know what? That's why we gathered. We gathered because this is the ecclesia. This is the place of commissioning. This is the place of assignment. This is the place of commission back into the marketplace. So I just want you guys to pray empowerment. I want you to pray anointing. If you have any prophetic words, I want you to just deliver them to each individual and just release the the presence and the power of God in this situation because that is, this is what Ecclesia is all about. It's about the glory of God in the people of God.